Hey, my name is Rudy Rivera. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh, I have a great privilege of not only pastoring the church, which I'm really just happy to do, and it's a real pleasure and joy, but also I get to lead uh, all of our corner leaders. I get to coach them, and they're just doing a fantastic job with our weekly ministries. And also I get to lead the staff. So I, I just want to, you know, if you go to our website, you'll see this picture. We, yeah, it's a great picture. We have an incredible staff team. Uh, Mike Clunky, who's not here this week, uh, he's out of town for the weekend. He and I pastor the church together. Really thrilled with the work that we're doing together here. Uh, it's been a real joy of mine. Also, Karen Hayes uh, is up there. She's actually uh, doing a lot of our web presence from up in the suburbs and just has been an integral work, worker for the church. Um, MC Bamya, she, she puts on our Sunday service, among other things. And so, yeah. <laughs> The, the work she's doing is absolutely phenomenal. It is such an awesome joy to be working with MC. Kristen, for many years, she's been asking me, can I have Freshman Connect? And, and I told the freshman this year, this week, or this past week, be careful. She might take me out because she really wants Freshman Connect. But she's doing an incredible work. You see her up here every Sunday leading us in worship. So Kristen's on our staff team as well. Heather Mars is up in that picture, and she's out raising support, trying to get back to us. Yeah trying to get back to us as soon as she can. And I got to tell you, maybe God, perhaps the Lord would lead some of you to join this staff team. I am thrilled to be leading the staff team. We have a killer dynamic staff team that's really been an exciting year for us. But that's not the message this morning. This morning, we're talking, continuing the series of I Am Second. It's a national campaign. We've been looking at the statements of Jesus where he says, I am. And so far, Jesus has claimed... I am the light of the world. And last week, Mike talked to us, and he said, Jesus said, I am living water. This week, this morning, Jesus is going to claim, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. What a phenomenal statement. It's a very famous statement. Most of you have probably heard it before. But here's some questions. Have you ever been disappointed in someone? Or, yeah, yeah, who hasn't, right? Or have you ever given yourself to something, like like your time, your energy, your passion, your, your affection, perhaps even your allegiance, only to find out that the person or the thing that you've been doing this for doesn't turn out to be what you thought? Maybe the person lets you down. That's pretty common. Everybody's been let down. Or maybe the outcome of the endeavor you've been putting your, your faith towards is, just doesn't work out. How about what's the longest amount of time that you've given yourself to a plant? One year? Some of you, for sure, have done one year. How about two years? Anybody two years? Three years where you've given yourself to to some plan, some future endeavor. I can tell you, as a college student, you're giving yourself probably to four to five years on a plan, right? You've got a plan. You came here, everybody came here with an an idea. You're going to do something. You're going to be somebody. So I can tell you, after the course of your college career, my hope is you've given yourself to some plan for about four-ish years. Your parents hope for three um, and your, your professors know it's five, so we'll just kind of work that out. <laughs> but if you say three years, if you can say, okay, 
I've given myself to something for three years, then you're, you're in pretty good company, and you're not alone. Because in a few minutes, we'll look at the scriptures, and we'll, we'll just look at a brief story of people just like you and me who gave themselves for three years, three years, to someone. And the idea of that someone, what that someone was all about. And at the end of the three years, those people, they discovered that the plan that they were following for three years was going to take a turn, an unexpected turn for them. And it, and it really rocked their world. So the question I had when I was reading this, this part, portion of Scripture is, what went wrong? What went wrong? And who defines the outcome? In fact, the question really is, who defines the people? So we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. And we'll talk about their story. And really, more specifically, what does their story mean for us? Because we want to we do something about the Bible this morning. But let me first tell you a, a really quick version of my story. Okay, and I won't take long, but you can hear more later if you'd like, okay? I was born in December 1973. Uh, that's a really good year and month for this church. <laughs> if you know, if, if you know the, Mike Clunky, you know the reason why. You know, New Year's Eve, December 31st, that's New Year's Eve to all of us, right? But in the Clunky household, that's Mike Clunky Day, okay? And maybe in our church it needs to be, like, change names. Mike Clunky born December uh, of 1973 on the last day of December of that year. So that's a good year. We're both born the same month and the same year. It was a good year. It was a good month. <laughs> my father and mother loved me very much. Grew up in a good household. But my father was really sick, really sick. I, I couldn't remember him not being sick. He had a stroke at an early age, and he lost use of his left arm. So his left arm was paralyzed, kind of just curled up. It was the 70s, PT, physical therapy and stuff. Eh, it was harder back then. And basically his arm, I mean, his arm was useless. It was there, but it was useless. He also had a left leg amputated above the knee. So no left leg, no use of the left arm, and he was in a wheelchair my entire life. I cannot remember my dad walking. There are pictures of him walking with me, but I don't remember any of them. And my mother was, they were newly married when some of these physical problems happened, within a year or two of marriage. So put yourself in her shoes. And after 30 years of being a, a, her, his primary caretaker, her, her body was giving out. Now, my dad was in the wheelchair. And so you can imagine in that kind of situation, the wheelchair is always with him. I mean, he, everywhere he is, the wheelchair is there. All the time. And you might imagine me as a young boy, okay, living in suburbia, Texas, San Antonio, we're out in a small backyard, want to go throw football. Okay, common thing for a young boy to do. Uh, I get out there, throw the ball to my dad. I have to kind of gently toss it to him. He can't get up. He can't walk. There's certainly, obviously, he's not running. He's in his wheelchair in the backyard, grabs the ball, and he could fire it back to me. But throwing it back to him... I had to just kind of hand it to him, basically. Now, how about the baseball? If any of you throw a baseball with a glove, you hear that familiar sound of the ball onto the glove, on the mitt. You know, it's like a really cool baseball sound, right? Never happened in my family. Never happened. Because dad could throw the ball to me, and it could pop to me, 
but I had to toss it back to dad. No glove, you know, no tossing it back to dad. As I grew older, I was in Boy Scouts, and our troop, one of the cool things about our troop is we went camping every month, every month. Guess who didn't go camping? Dad didn't go camping. He never went camping with me. He couldn't go hiking with me. He was always in his wheelchair. Now, don't get me wrong. Wheelchairs have their advantages. You go to Six Flags or Disney World, you get to the front of the line all the time. You know, here here you go, sir. Come on up, front of the line. And we get to ride multiple times, and it was really cool. But it did not in any way make up for the lost opportunities with my dad. It just did not make up that, those lost opportunities. Five years ago this past April, my dad died. And for more than 10 years prior to that, I would think about his pending death, and I would think about how God in the Bible promises that in heaven, after death for the Christian, there's no suffering, no pain. And I would think about things like that and go, guess what that means for us? No more wheelchair. No wheelchair for dad, no wheelchair for us. The wheelchair will be gone. And I would kind of ponder that from time to time. His death would mean the end of the, you know, the, the lifting and, and the folding and, and just all the problems that a wheelchair has, the widened doors and the need to go up and down stairs with a wheelchair. Who does that? And having to find back doors to our favorite restaurants. Because before the government changed some of the laws, ramps weren't in existence on sidewalks for wheelchairs. So our favorite restaurants, we'd go through the back door, literally through the kitchen sometimes, to get to a table. Because it was easier. And just doing kind of this other way of life. So you, can, you might imagine me the day my dad died. I come out of the hospital with my mom, who's now in the very same wheelchair. Because after 30 years, her body was, had taken a toll. And I, I pushed her out to my car. I own a silver CRV, 1999, if you can picture that car. And, and I, I pull her up to the front seat, and I help her get in the, into the front seat. And then I wheel around the wheelchair to the back of the car and open up the, 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 the trunk. And, and I fold up the wheelchair. And literally, I, literally, I can picture it. I go, and I picture it up, and I pull it up, and I'm about to put it in my car, and I'm saying these words. Mom, isn't it just such a great thing that we're not going to have to use this wheelchair anymore? And I laugh. And I laughed because I knew right there, it was just instinct. I'd been thinking about it for a long time. I had a plan. The irony that day was that my dad died, but his wheelchair didn't die. It stayed with us. I couldn't help but laugh. He was gone, and the chair remained. And my plan had definitely changed. And I began to realize that year in 2009 that my life was defined by being, having a sick father. I, I, was, I was the kid with the sick dad. I was the kid with the dad in a wheelchair. And my dad dying, I didn't expect this, but right off the bat, my dad dying left a void in my identity. It, it left a void to some extent. So, so the question this morning and the question that I want to pose to you, and I want you to be thinking about is what or who defines you? What or who defines you? Let's pray. 
Father God, I, I'm convinced that just as I have a story, everybody in this room has a story that you've been writing. And certainly, I'm sure, it doesn't involve wheelchairs and sick fathers. But it does, it does have its own twists and turns. God, would you speak to each of us this morning about how you want to define us? How you, God, want to be our primary definition? I pray, God, that you would do that in the next few minutes. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can pull it out. We'll have the verses up there. By the way, we give away Bibles in the lobby. I, I borrowed one today for this sake. So if you, if, you want, if you need a Bible here at campus, pick one up on the way out. We're giving those away. And if we need more out there, t- tell us and we'll get more. Let's look at this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Now, here's the setup really quickly. It's the upper room. It's the night Jesus is going to be betrayed. He, some, some of the, one of the Gospels, actually the Gospel of John, talks about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Some of you know that story. Okay? And then he talks about, he, he predicts and he tells them the story that, hey, somebody's going to betray me. Okay? And, and then tonight, Peter, what, what's going to happen is you're going to come under great scrutiny and you're going to deny me. And then he tells them, I'm going to die and I'm going to be gone from you. And these guys are like, what? Three years. Three years. Hold on a second. We have a plan. We have a plan. We, we shook on it, Jesus. We're kind of moving in this direction. Right? And then Jesus says, well, let me tell you more. And he goes on, after our portion of Scripture, he goes on to tell about how the Holy Spirit's going to come and things were going to be made right. And he starts to pray for them. And later we'll talk about that. But our portion of Scripture is flat da- it's just right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of that portion of Scripture, where Jesus then pulls aside and he says, I know I just told you the plan's changing from their perspective. But let me bring you comfort. Let me bring you hope. So he says this, John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, we refer to him as Doubting Thomas, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know me and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let not your hearts be troubled. He's telling them, trust me. Trust me. Will you trust me? And he says it multiple times in multiple ways. And he's trying to instill in them hope because these guys had given up their life for three years. And he's wanting to bring them comfort because the plan seems to be changing. The plan they thought was going to happen was taking a turn, an unexpected turn. And Jesus, what he's saying in these words, he's saying, what defines you, disciples, Thomas? What defines you, Philip? What defines you, Cornerstone? What defines you? They'd given up their families. We, we heard that two weeks ago. They'd given up their jobs. They'd given up the promised future, what they had planned, to follow a man named Jesus. But not just any man. To follow the rabbi Jesus, but not just any rabbi. They had left everything to follow the Christ, the Messiah, the God of their fathers. And he had just told them the plan was what, not what they expected. See, they thought they had been thinking for a long time. They had been thinking that a king would come, and this was the guy. Let's align ourselves to the king, because the king's here, and he's going to set up the rule. And Rome, bam, down. Right? Any oppression, bam, down. Right? Any wrong against us, bam, down. Jesus is here. He's going to establish it all. He's going to make it all right. It's now or never. Let's attach ourselves to this guy. We've been waiting for this guy. He's the one who's going to sit on David's throne. He's the one that's going to be the king. And can you imagine, can you imagine just attaching yourself to one with that kind of authority? Somebody that comes in and says, I'm setting up a new kingdom. And this is the one to be aligned with. Can you imagine that? These guys were in it. They had a plan. They were going to rule. They were going to be with him. They were going to be the right-hand man. They were going to take vengeance on the world. And God had a better plan. And Jesus was telling them, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be gone from you, and you're not going to see me anymore. And he tells them the words, I'm going away. I am the way and the truth, and the life. And Jesus, in those words, is saying, what defines you, men? What defines you? Some plan or way you've concocted? Something you've thought through? Or, or him? Some truth you subscribe to? Or the truth? Some life you have planned out in advance? Or the life? Because, as I said earlier, I'm convinced Everybody here, you came to ISU, you came to Heartland, you came to Wesleyan with a plan. Or at least your parents hope you to have a plan. That's how it works. It's a lot of money invested, a lot of time, and you have a plan. And you have a way picked out, and you go to your academic advisor, and they lay out your years for you. And that's good. That's right. And you have... You know, you think about it, four years. This was my plan. I'd graduate from the University of Texas. I, had a, I was on a five-year plan. It took me five years. Graduated with a kinesiology degree. I was going to be a coach. I delivered pizzas when I graduated from the University of Texas. I didn't plan that. 
Yeah, hook him on. I see a hook him on the background. Some of you look around the room or you look around campus or you look through your Facebook contacts and you think, I know who I'm going to marry. Got it all down. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> you know how things should work. But I can tell you for all of you, God, God has a way of changing plans. And Jesus asks all of us, what defines you? What's defining you this morning? Your, your school, your intellect, your associations, your friends, your money, your house, your athleticism, your family, sexuality, boyfriend, your girlfriend, your clothing. Please don't let it be your clothing. It's way low on the list. Not your clothing. Let me tell you, in 1995, I was walking on the beach in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and I was at our leadership training program, the summer-long thing we send students to every year. And that year was in Myrtle Beach. I was walking on the beach with a friend, and I was talking about my girlfriend at the time. We've been married now 17 years. We were high school sweethearts. So at that point, it was like four years into our relationship. And we were walking on the beach, and I just knew it. I knew it here, and I knew it here, that God was calling me to lay my relationship with my girlfriend on the altar. I knew that she had taken more primary, a more primary place in my heart than God. And I wanted to follow God. I wanted to be his disciple. But, but she was in the way, and I knew it. I knew it. And my friend asked me, in, in kind of in the silence of that time, I knew it. And he finally asked me, he said, do you think God might want you to put her before him? And, and the picture I had, if you know the Bible, the picture I had was Abraham and Isaac and the God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son. Crazy story. Go read it sometime. Crazy story. And, and I said, God, I literally, I said, I have to go on. So he took off. He peeled off to the side and I kept walking on the beach. And I prayed prayers like this. God, I know, I know you're calling me to follow you, but Brooke is, is primary. God, I don't want that to be the case. And I just literally, I, I, I pictured me taking my girlfriend at the time and putting her on this imaginary altar and saying, God, she's yours. She's yours, and, and I want you more. And we're married 17 years later, three kids. God had a plan for my life regarding my wife, but in that summer, I knew, I knew God was calling me to be defined more by him than that relationship. So I did. I want to show you a video. We want to show you a video of another man who had his life interrupted by Jesus. And like the disciples in John 14, and like us this morning, Jesus talked to him about defining his life. What was going to define him? His name is Remy. Let's watch his video. I was laying in my bed one day and I heard something tell me to join the military. I don't know what it was, but something told me, join the military. For me to join the military, that was kind of like they were my enemy. I hated cops, the NYPD. I associated anybody in a uniform with the police, whether you were a firefighter or whether you were a soldier, you were the police to me. I did not want to join the military, but this voice just guided me. I left the house, I walked into the recruiter's office, 
And within a week, I was in Navy boot camp. It just, it happened that fast. My life didn't start out as, as Remy the Navy SEAL. I was born into a very wealthy family. My dad was Nigerian. My mom, she's American. We had cars, we had maids and, and nannies. We had a place in Lome, Togo, a place in Nigeria, a place in America. When I was about five years old, my father died. And my mom, she just looked at us and she said, uh, he's gone, your father's gone, he's not coming back. The Nigerian government pretty much stripped him of everything. His money, wealth, everything. We went from riches to rags in an instant. And I kind of blamed our upbringing, the fact that we didn't have much on the fact that he was gone. That day was a day that my search began, unaware to even myself, for me to fill that paternal void. And believe me, I searched. I searched and I searched and I searched. In the late 80s and the early 90s, hip-hop and rap began to blossom. It was in the streets, blasting from their houses. Gangster rap got huge, and it really caught on to me. I'm on another planet, can't live on the world we own. In my mind, these men who came from where I came from, they had single moms who grew up in the inner city. You know, I felt like I could relate to them. I wanted to dress like them, walk like them, talk like them, think like them. I wanted to gain the same level of attention from women as they did. They kind of became my fathers. Y'all playing go-go, that dice with your life like it's a game. My goal was to get the money, then get the power, and then get the respect. I started stealing from my mom. By the time I was 19, I had money, cars, women. I wanted to be this, yo, I'm a thug, I'm a gangster, I'm a player. You can't tell me nothing, nobody can't beat me. I got all the money, I'm the best guy on the block. My dress was just like them. My hat was on backwards. My jeans were sagging. My attitude was just cocky and arrogant. I was trying to live up to the standards of these rappers, these gangsters, these hustlers. I was totally out of control. Gradually, the money ran out. I made a lot of promises to a lot of people that I honestly couldn't keep. One day, I was laying in my room. A darkness came into my room. I wasn't dreaming. I was wide awake. I messed up so much that something had to pull me out of my darkness back down to reality. I got to say that it was divine intervention. I heard something tell me to join the military. I don't know what it was, but something told me, join the military. You know, I heard about the SEAL teams, I heard about Navy SEALs. You know, you watch action movies, Terminator, Bad Boys, all this stuff. Running a gun and then being an action man is something that I never thought I would do. SEAL training is like nothing on this planet. People have died in SEAL training. Men have lost everything trying to conquer SEAL training and still fail. I was a thug still at that time. I still was a player at that time. All that stuff was ingrained in me over years, years and years. I would get hammered by, by these instructors, these warriors, these guys who, who really did stuff. That mentality that I had, it, it wouldn't fly with them. Even though I went to SEAL training uh, and it was a positive influence on my life, that paternal void, it was still missing. 
I still continued to search. I continued to search. As time went on, I met a, I met a woman who, who was just like a breath of fresh air. It was like the world just completely stopped. She invited me to church one day. And I said, sure, why not? I'll go to church, you know. I'll do whatever I need to do to get close to you, so I'll go to church. I remember being in the church, people worshiping and praising God, and she had her hands up looking at her like, what are you doing? What is? What are the people in this room doing? Are these people okay? Is everything all right? Who are they looking to? What are they, what are they looking at? These people are crazy. I didn't really believe in God. Like, I heard about God, but I didn't believe in God. You know, my mentality was, I made it through the Bronx, I made it through the streets, and now I'm a Navy SEAL. It's like, nobody really can't tell me nothing. Nobody can't tell me nothing. I mean, what can you tell me? Our relationship continued to grow and grow, but at the same time, I was becoming more and more prideful. I went out and I partied and I hung out with the boys. I'm about to be a SEAL. It's like, why would I want to be tied down? I broke up with her, and she was just screaming, how can you do this to me? I've given up so much for you. My heart was so hard that I was just like, okay, when are you going to leave the house? But that same voice that guided me into the military that day, that same voice told me, take her back. You should have been good to her. You should have been a good person to her. Take her back. I told myself, I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to treat her better. But it was too late. She wanted to take me back. It started to eat at me. I started begging, please take me back, please take me back. Now I messed up. I really, really messed up. I messed up a lot in my past, but this time I really, really messed up. The words just came out of me. I said, okay, if you won't take me back, can you take me to church? I was so broken over our relationship, broken over the absence of a father, guilt from the things I did to my mom, the things I put her through, broken over the years of, of, of foolishness and, and things that I have done. The lies I, I, I told to so many people. And I was so broken that the only entity that could put me back together was God, was Jesus Christ. She took me to church the next day in that church service. I just humbled myself and I just submitted my life to him because I knew a change had to take place. I gave my life to the Lord in that day. It was a day that I was pulled out of my darkness and into God's light. The journey with Jesus Christ has been amazing, and I just want to continue to do what God has intended me to do. I truly believe that I was born to be a SEAL. I was born to be a warrior. There's nothing like being on an RG, heading down a target, jump out of plane, scuba dive, shoot guns, blow things up, and to go after a bad guy knowing that, you know, Jesus Christ is in your corner. It's nothing like being able to utilize your, your testimony, the stories that God has given you to reach into the dark places and pull people into the light. I know that God didn't intend for me to be a thug. I know that God didn't intend for me to be a hustler and a player and, and, and to dress the way I dressed and to talk the way I talk. He didn't intend that for me. And now I can honestly say that I'm not just a product of my environment. As a matter of fact, I'm not a product of my environment. I'm a product of Jesus Christ. I'm Remy Adelike, and I am second. I love that. <clears throat> that last line <clears throat> just hooked me when I saw that video. I'm not a product of my environment. Matter of fact, I'm a product of Jesus Christ. I thought, wow, 
What defines Remy is not a, a what, it's a who. It's a who. And who defines Remy is Jesus Christ. And it's just as Jesus remade Remy, Jesus wants to remake us. He wants to be our way, the way in our life. And, and he wants to be the truth. He wants to be our life. And, and I just was picturing the disciples in that room where Jesus is telling them these things. And he's saying at the end of that, what, he, what he's trying to get at is, trust me, trust me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And he tells us the same thing this morning. It's the same message. Will you trust Jesus to define your life? Two things, two ways you can apply this. Two ways. And they have to go hand in hand, I think, because we're all prone, we're all prone to being way out of balance. Like me, when I walked on that beach that that summer, you can actively think through your heart and your mind and ask God to show you, is there anything that you think is more important than Jesus? And you can actively let that go. You can put that before him and say, I don't want to identify with these other things. Like Remy said, I identify with Jesus. Here's the second part of that. My encouragement to you is if you do that, my encouragement is you would find a church leader or an older Christian in your life that can help you, that can help you speak into that and say, yeah, that seems about right. Because sometimes, sometimes we're all prone. We're just prone to just going way to extremes. And I really want you guys to keep balanced in that. Will you stand with me and pray? Jesus, these words are meant to bring us hope and comfort and um, meant, meant to keep us, Lord, from chasing after the things that will not produce life, that won't produce truth. I, I was picturing us without truth. It's, it's like not knowing, your, no, knowing up from down, left from right. Maybe like this, um, like sitting in space where you just kind of spin infinitely with no way to kind of stop and gather your bearings. God, would you reveal these things to us? And Jesus, we ask you in your name to define us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.